This is Skinny Trees, an exploration of health inequities in and around Chicago, episode three. All right, guys, welcome back to Skinny Trees. Uh, We want to say Happy New Year to everyone. Even though it's March. Wow, it is March, (laughs) yeah. It's been a while since you've heard from us. If Things have been like super busy on our end. Okay, but we have some really awesome episodes coming up that Jen is going to tell you about in a few. Um, We're honored, as always, to have another opportunity to spend time with you, our listeners. So thank you guys for your continued support. Yeah, so the next three episodes, we decided we're going to take a different approach and look at non-traditional populations of people that have health disparities. So we're going to kick off those episodes with this episode today, which is about people living with disabilities. Um, and we're going to talk to Access Living, which is this awesome organization in Chicago. Our next episode is going to be on LGBT community. And then we're going to round out this next series with the Asian American community. And we're going to focus on a really neat project that's taking place in Chicago's Chinatown. So like I said, today we're going to focus on people with disabilities. This is a really important population because there are so many folks that have disabilities. There's over 1 billion people globally that have a disability, which is one in seven people. And these folks are four times likely to report subpar health. They're two times more likely to find health care provider skills and facilities to be inadequate. They're three times more likely to be denied health care. They're four times more likely to be treated badly within the healthcare system. And again, this is all when comparing people, people with disabilities to people without disabilities. So they face a lot of health disparities, a lot of health issues, a lot of issues accessing the system. So we thought this would be a really good community to chat with for Skinny Trees. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, And I was honored and really had the privilege of interviewing Tom Wilson, um, who is the community development organizer in healthcare at Access Living, and he really does a ton of different things. Um, Also joining me on the interview are consumers of Access Living, Michael Grice and Susan Arup. Access Living um, fosters the dignity, the pride, and self-esteem of people with disabilities and enhances the options available to them so they may choose and maintain individualized and satisfying lifestyles. Yeah, and you mentioned consumers, and so before we start the episode, I just want to mention briefly that Access Living uses the term consumers quite a bit, and that basically just means any individual who comes to Access Living who uses services or resources that Access Living provides. So you'll hear the word consumer sort of thrown around in the interview, and Susan and Michael are two wonderful consumers who have been using Access Living resources for a very long time, and they're going to go into detail about how Access Living has helped to improve their quality of life and give them more independent living. Such a cool interview. I also want to mention that um, they use the term ADA in the interview, and that stands for the Americans with Disabilities Act. We're going to put up some resources on our website that explains more about what the ADA is. But basically, in short, it was... It rolled out in 1990 by President Bush, and it was put forth to secure equal opportunities and rights for people with disabilities. And they're defining people with disabilities as somebody with a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activity. And there's so many different ways to define disability. The ADA defines it more in a legal way. There's different medical ways of defining disability. But just sort of to level set, that's kind of what we're thinking. So with that said, let's go to the interview. Thank you all for joining us. Um, We're here at Access Living, so I'm not going to give too much of an introduction. We have... Uh, Tom Wilson here. We have Susan. Susan Arup. Susan Arup. Yes. And Mike. Michael Grice. Michael Grice. Okay. So we're going to start out just by talking a bit with Tom. I'd like you to, because I really don't know your title here. What do you do? So if you could tell us a little bit about what you do here and also give us an introduction to Access Living. Sure. Um, My name is Tom Wilson, as you said. Uh, I've been here at Access Living for over 26 years, so I'm a little bit of a veteran. Um, I I came here doing um, casework, visiting people with uh, disabilities in their homes to assess them for services. I um, always considered that to be like my graduate work in disability because I visited, uh, you know, a 1,000-plus people in their homes, maybe closer to two. Um, and Access Living is um, one of the first 10 uh, centers for independent living in the country. It was formed in 1980. 
um, through funding through the uh, uh, Rehab Act, which is a federal law, and it uh, is a center for advocacy and services for people with disabilities. The thing that makes Access Living unique and other centers for independent living is that over half the board has to be people with disabilities and over half the staff have to be people with disabilities. So it's an agency for and by people with disabilities. Um, we're one of the larger centers. We're very uh, tuned into advocacy, but we also do independent living skills, um, helping people deinstitutionalize from nursing homes and other institutions. Uh, we do peer support. That's kind of a cornerstone principle of uh, independent living. And we have information referral. We still do casework for the city of Chicago. Uh, we have financial literacy. We have uh, a group that's called Stepping Stones for people who've come out of the nursing home who want, uh, what would I say, kind of an orientation to community living. People lose their ability to live in the community, so Stepping Stones kind of reorients them to what they need to know to live successfully in the community. We're in the advocacy area, I work with the Task Force for Attendant Services, which is all about defending uh, people's rights to uh, home care. Um, in the U.S., we've relied way too much on institutions to take care of people with disabilities and seniors. And even though the law is on our side, it's been a 40-year battle to transition people to community living and get the funding in that area. We also have Independent Voices, which is an advocacy group for people who have been in nursing homes. We have uh, uh, Dawn, which is Disabled Americans Want Work Now, advocating for jobs. Um, we have DRAC, which is our housing advocacy group, which has been working on the Keep the Promise Ordinance, which you know the CHA has been sitting on a lot of money, and we're demanding that they put that into affordable housing for poor and disabled people. So, and there's other advocacy groups for uh, girls and, and uh, young people with disabilities as well. So we, we have quite a range of things that we do. Wow, that's, that's awesome. Um, and so we were looking at your website, and I, I didn't even really know much about the independent living uh, movement, and it seems like in the 1980s there wasn't much... Um, there, the webs, according to the website there, there wasn't, I guess, anything really available for people with disabilities. So you said that there's been a 40-year battle. So I'm interested in knowing, and maybe we can hear from um, Susan and Mike, what are the biggest challenges that you feel are still facing uh, members, despite the progress that you've made, but what are some biggest, the biggest challenges that members of the disability community are still facing? And do you see that changing at all with the new presidency? I think... Um, there are two battles that come come to mind for me, and the first one is definitely finding affordable, accessible, integrated housing. I have been in several institutions, and it was took me a very long time to find accessible, affordable housing. Uh, prior to coming to Access Living, I was looking for housing myself. And at that particular time, there was nothing out there that was affordable or accessible that would accommodate myself. Uh, but when I got involved with Access Living, um, I also got involved with Stepping Stones. I went through uh, Stepping Stones and I was able to get transition out. Stepping Stone gives you the tools and the knowledge that consumers need to connect up programs and services in the community like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, transportation, um, Meals on Wheels, all of those services 
consumers need to be successful in the community. But there's, there's still not enough community supports right now. And every day that I come to Access Living, I advocate for more and more community supports. And now one of the biggest problems is home care. That program is under attack. And I'm a consumer in that program. Um, and I need that program to remain in the community. Uh, my personal care assistants are an extension of myself. They are they work for me with with my uh, self direction and things that I need assistance with, such as bathing, cooking, dressing, grocery shopping. They help me do the things that I need assistance with. And without personal care assistance, I wouldn't be here today. But I'm very fearful of the next administration coming in. Yeah. You know, here at Access Living, I'm part of a health team with uh, Judy Panko Reese. And one of the things that we uh, look at is the social determinants of health. And a lot of the things that Mike just talked about are um, markers that really shorten lives, that uh, hurt people's health care. And, you know, we see that access to health care. Um, you were talking about the thir over the history of the independent living movement. Well, I think the trend has been towards uh, worse rather than better. Mm -hmm. We have actually seen uh, managed care come in and make it harder yep. through networks to get access to specialists and the care that people really need. Um, even though we've been slowly winning the battle to get more money for home and community services, there's still a, a, a million people or more um, in nursing homes under uh, Medicaid funding, which who, who most could live successfully in the community, cheaper and happier and healthier. So those are, those are huge issues that we're still um, not not getting ahead on. Homelessness, I think, has increased over that time. Um, you know, there there's so many issues that we see where the U.S. is going backwards and. You know, social determinants of health, when you have great economic inequality and people with disabilities are often the poorest of the poor, uh, you're not going to see good health outcomes in that situation. Mm -hmm. um, for me, that's an important part. But for me, it's harder to find jobs for people with disabilities. They think... It is better since the ADA and, and the Human Rights Act of Illinois, it is better. But we have a long way to go because you still have that discrimination. And I think societally, people are suffering more because of jobs. I currently have two part-time jobs and have applied for a third. One being 15 hours a week, one being five, 10 hours a week, and one being five hours a week. Plus, we're seeing this trend of going back to school to give us different careers mm -hmm. and different opportunities. But then you have the education getting cut because of no budget impasse. And I think with the new Trump administration and some of the people that he's trying to pass through for his cabinet, especially for education. He, the, appoint, the appointee that he once appointed is 
that didn't even know what the IDEA was. What is that? That's the civil, that's the civil rights law for students and children with disabilities so that they are in the least restrictive environment and they get the IEPs that they need. And the education is linked to the jobs, which is linked to the housing. So everything is all linked together. Mm -hmm. And IEP is an individual education plan, right? right? Yeah. And, and she didn't know who that uh, she, she didn't know what that was. She didn't know yeah. what the uh, uh, civil rights law was for kids with disabilities in the schools, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Wow. Yeah. And she didn't even know what the ADA was either. They referenced the Americans with Disabilities Act, mm -hmm. which was passed in 1990. It's a civil rights mm -hmm. bill. And she... she didn't know what that was either. Right. So we, we see lots of challenges in healthcare. Um, here at Access Living, we had a small grant that um, we did focus groups with uh, the disability community. We uh, had about 100 people in our focus groups that covered uh, deaf folks, blind folks, people with cognitive disabilities, people with psychiatric disabilities, and people with physical disabilities. And we found that there were numerous ways that the healthcare system uh, created barriers to uh, adequate healthcare. I mean, people who were blind could not get their instructions in Braille. One complaint was is that while they would read their instructions to them, they'd do it in the public waiting room and, uh, and all their privacy was being totally violated. Um, with the deaf, getting sign language interpreters still a, a very big issue in medical settings. Uh, one friend that uh, I have went to the emergency room, and it was like 10 to 12 hours before they got a sign language interpreter to uh, her so that she could uh, communicate with the medical staff there. So, you know, these kind of things are, are really serious. Um, another story from our focus group was um, somebody went in with a, 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 you know, I think it was a heart attack anyway, a, a, something with their, um, with their heart. And um, it wasn't until after the surgery that they found a sign language interpreter to uh, communicate with the, the person. So they really didn't even know what was happening to them when they took them into surgery, right? Oh, my goodness. Um, That's scary. Yeah. Wow. And we... You know, with people with physical disabilities, the majority of exam tables are still inaccessible. Um, we know that in women's health, uh, people don't get um, um, good cervical exams because rooms the table is accessible. accessible. Examining rooms are not accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some cases they're not even big enough for a wheelchair to right. fit. Right. Um, and um, so the exam rates for people with disabilities, or the screening rates for cancer and things are quite low in, in many cases. Um, weighing, a lot of clinics on, on doctor's offices don't have accessible scales. And, you know, when you're prescribing drugs, weight is a major factor in the dosage, right? Yes, yes. major. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's hard to get... Uh, things right when when you don't have the uh, right equipment, um, and you know it's now um, what is it 37 years or 36 and a half years after the ADA, and um, uh, well 26. I'm sorry, my math's bad here. <laughs> and um, the uh, uh, there there just came out uh, guidelines for medical facilities on accessibility. And, and their uh, recommendations, they aren't like compulsory. Mm -hmm. um, we're hoping that they'll move to a little more compulsory stage. Uh, another thing is, is that you know, people with disabilities make up at least 18% of the population of the country by census data. But it was only uh, in the Affordable Care Act that there was language to talk about disparities in healthcare based on disability. So there's not a, a lot of research or data on it. Our, you know, our focus groups are actually probably some of the richest material out there on, on this topic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was a very low, small, you know, small-funded project. So. And race and disability 
the intersection. The intersection. And poverty. Well, that too. Yeah, that's um, a given almost. So many of the people with disabilities are poor. Many of the services that people with disabilities use, you're penalized for having too much income. Your assets are only allowed $2,000 for assets for home services programs. Mm. That's over the course of your, of the whole program. So, and the state has been very, very strict on its rules. I just went, I just went through a home, an assessment yesterday, and um, she has to come back because she didn't finish. And because I was leaving to go to my job, and she's like, you work? <laughs> I'm like, yes. I don't have a choice. I found that they're more likely to approve services if you're doing something. Yeah, mm. although, you know, that can be a f form of discrimination, too, because if you really yeah. need the services, you should be getting them. Right. Um, you know, we, we encourage people to go to work, but we know that people with disabilities are going to face discrimination and there's not enough jobs out there for uh, people who are not disabled, much less people that are disabled. So mm -hmm. it, it, that's a huge problem. That's a social problem overall. Um, I think when we talk about the inequalities, we really need to see that people with disabilities are kept poor and, and almost have no opportunity to advance. There's low expectations placed on people oftentimes. Um, if you don't have a, a strong work history, you're getting about $760 a month in SSI. In Chicago, you can't even afford an apartment at that rate. Um, so you need to have subsidized housing or you're living with family even though you may not want to, for example. Um, it's, it's not enough money to... Um, look after your, your health in a, a proper way, um, it, it, it really is degrading. Um, we know that health is uh, um, based on, on social strata and esteem. I know they did a study in Britain about the uh, government bureaucracy, and whatever their ranking, whenever the ranking in the government went up, people's longevity bulged up a little bit. So, so social esteem and your value to society um, can really be detrimental if you don't, if you're lacking it, can really be detrimental to your health. So that's something that people with disabilities are facing beyond the outright discrimination and the outright physical barriers to health care that, that they encounter every day. Um, doctors' attitudes can be quite bad. Um, when people go to the hospital, there's often this idea that um, people with disabilities uh, should sign a do not resuscitate order because their lives are not valued the same as other people. There's often pressure put on people to do that. So, you know, we see discrimination taking a lot of different forms. Are there certain, so like hospitals in Chicago, are there uh, mandated regulations for to accommodate um, consumers when they come and see physicians? So are, are there, is there a specific hospital maybe that has made great progress in that direction? Uh, there, there have been several hospitals that have uh, done accessibility surveys, mm -hmm. some voluntarily, some with uh, uh, legal pressure, I mm -hmm. will say. Okay. Um, and I, I would say that, that that has helped to some degree. Um, not having strong federal laws that you can point to and say you have to comply has made that more difficult. And... Um, you know, obviously hospitals that have more resources are more likely to be, um, more likely to have higher standards. It, it also depends on where the hospital is at. What neighborhood, you mean? Yeah. That's yeah. a resource yeah. issue too. Mm -hmm. we, we see people with disabilities often live in 
poor neighborhoods because they're poor, and the hospitals in poor neighborhoods are often kind of uh, scary. I know Susan used to visit Mike when he went to some of the hospitals in, in Chicago that are in poor neighborhoods. And, you know, sometimes it was like Susan was there to just protect uh, uh, Mike's well-being because the, because you weren't quite sure what was going to happen next. <laughs> wow. Interesting. So that's also, like, like said, that's also something that we fight for. Mike was, he said he was in several institutions. And you want, you want some, you want some advocacy. You want somebody look, looking out for you because the, the people in the institution, because it's an institution, don't always have they it. don't have the time. They don't care. I mean, and you want people to to live. Yeah, they, you need social supports. Um, Susan's in a program now where she's being a, a, a health. Uh, um, a, well, she's supporting people in their health uh, choices. It's a program that's kind of experimental. And, um, you know, people with disabilities often understand uh, the situations that other people with disabilities are in. Mm -hmm. So peer support, we've, there's just beginning to be a little bit more of that. In the mental health community, you have um, uh, peer recovery support specialists. Uh, who go through quite a bit of training, but you'd still call them kind of the layman in the healthcare world. Mm -hmm. But that kind of uh, person just has so much, so much more sympathy because they've been through the same things that the you know the other person has is facing. And uh, we think that that has that can add real value to a healthcare system that's often bureaucratic, for profit, uncaring. Um, um, focused on other things other than health all too often. Right. That's interesting. So is that like, so for instance, um, in our gestational diabetes clinic, we link mothers that have gestational diabetes up with other mothers. So that's they can, is peer that, support. That, exactly awesome. the idea. Okay. So they're able to talk and just chat about the different things that they're going through. Mm -hmm. I think that's awesome. There's a lot of strength in that. Cool. Um, I want to go back a little bit. So Mike, I have a question about the home care and you said that you felt like that might be threatened a little bit. So um, I have some relatives that utilize home care as well. And I'm wondering, um, are these people that are coming to your home, is there like a separate training for them? Are they, do they have a skill set where they know exactly how to help consumers? Um, because I assume that you, you have to be trained or do they just send anyone out there that, how does that work? Well, my situation is unique. Okay. I um, brought two CNAs with me from the nursing home that I was living in since we worked so well together in the nursing home. I approached them and asked them would they come and work for me. And it's Worked, worked out. out very well for the last yeah. two and a half years. Mike, can I give a little bit of a background? The Illinois Home Services Program was created in 1980 with a great deal of input by people with disabilities. Actually, it was mm -hmm. demanded by the community, of course. And um, the program was created to maximize the control of the person with the disabilities. They hired their uh, worker. They can fire their worker. They supervise the worker. They set the... Uh, uh, work hours within the framework of you know you have a you have an agreement with the state that you can have workers for so many hours per week or whatever um, you know that maximum control is something that really gives people a lot more freedom and independence and um, you know Susan talked about how to qualify for Medicaid which pays for this program you can only have two thousand dollars but they have found some ways to create some exemptions for people that are working. Because if you're working, you might, you're paying taxes, you're contributing, but you're not likely to have enough income to pay for all the care that you need, especially if you're more severely disabled. 
So this program's a lifeline for people who uh, want to live in the community. The state has challenged that in many different ways lately. They tried to change the evaluation system and take away points that on the Don that people needed to get the amount of hours that, that um, were required to have them live a, a high quality life with the care that they really need to make sure they got bathed you know, every day, that their health care needs were taken care of. Um, you know, many people need help and support just going to the bathroom. Um, you know, th there's a lot of things that you and I do uh, independently that other people need help with, you know, multiple times per day. And, it, and it's really hard work. Now, as far as training you asked about, here at Access Living, we have a training program, but people who are hiring can hire anybody they want, pretty much. There's a very, very few small exceptions to that. And um, they, the person who is hiring can also do the training, right? If you're the boss, you can do the training. Now, there's also a, a home care workers union, and the union in their contract also got some money for uh, training. It was voluntary training that uh, home care workers could um, participate in. And it's not existing anymore. Well, the, there's the no contract. That's right. The state's budget crisis has uh, meant that this, the state has not negotiated a new contract with them. So that training isn't happening at the moment. Um, Access Living, because of a court order that the state pay us, is still doing our training. Um, we, we keep a, a list of people that have gone through the training. People can interviewed from that list if they want, but they're certainly not limited to looking at, at our list. Um, that, that, um, that level of control doesn't exist for seniors in Illinois. They have to go through a home care agency to get their help, and um, they also don't do the personal care that the home services program does. So many seniors in Illinois are condemned to nursing home living way before they would need to if they could get a higher level of personal care. Um, almost nobody in the uh, senior program gets more than 20 hours a week. And like in, in Susan and Mike's case, you know, you're getting 60 a week. Susan's getting 50-some, 50 56, 57? 56. 56. And um, I, I would argue that both of you would benefit from uh, additional hours, actually. And that's just another area where the state keeps trying to cut things back. And it's really hard to explain to the state why you need these extra hours. Mm -hmm. it, because, uh, and the fact that they want them. They used to let them be in the community a little bit more. You used to be able to get outside of the home hours, some, like for grocery shopping or medical medical appointments or just going somewhere. Now you can't. Now they don't do that anymore. So they're like limiting, you need eight hours a day, but you have to be in your home wall. That's yeah. People don't live just in their own homes. They live in the community. And yeah. to be a prisoner in your own home is just another form of institutionalization in a way. So, you know, the state is taking people backwards in, in many situations. And, um, you know, the advocacy efforts, like we try to fight for adequate services, but the grievance procedures have been uh, what I would say pared back. So it's harder to fight for these hours when they do try to take them away. There's not fewer places to turn, and the few that there are are overworked and often will turn you down because they don't have you know another enough staff to do it. So you know these these kind of uh, um, Struggles, you know, in this age of um, what I would call, you know, austerity, extreme inequality, are definitely impacting um, people with disabilities in some negative ways. Um, Medicaid managed care, as I mentioned, has been 
kind of a disaster because, again, the control is in the hands of an insurance company through their case coordinator. Um, you may have had a great specialist that you were seeing, understood your condition perfectly, but not, if none of the managed care companies out there that you can enroll in have that person in your network, you're going to have a discontinuity of care. And we've seen a great deal of discontinuity of care created through the adoption of the uh, Medicaid managed care and, and blocking people from academic institutions because they tend to be more expensive. So who do the uh, managed care con uh, companies contract with? They tend to contract with the, the cheaper providers. And, and if you have a, a, a disability that's very unique and unusual, very specialized, you probably need a doctor who's extremely specialized. And, and they've made it harder and harder to get to those people. Here at Access Living, we had a very good unbutment program until about a month ago. The state decided that Access Living didn't need the unbutment program, but consumers that came to Access Living knew that they could depend on the ombudsman program because that particular team knew the needs and the issues of consumers that come to Access Living. Now, a person like myself really has nowhere, nowhere to go really at the state level. Well, there's an 800 number. <laughs> Department of Aging, and, and that doesn't really work. That doesn't really solve anything. <laughs> no, but but see, this is what we're happening, and it's happening federally with the new administration now. Attacking the Affordable Care Act, attacking Medicaid, right? Yes. Yeah. Blackprints. But this now was. And then we already, in the state, we haven't had a decent budget for 18 months since Governor Rogers been in office. So we're kind of, and somebody asked me how my, how my, because I, I was signing my way back to school for jobs and things like that. And um, they they were telling me how how is your institution faring? Well it's a, it's a religious institution but it still got some federal money. So we're still feeling the crunch. And the guidelines, and it's we're living in big with this new administration. We're living in very scary times for people with disabilities, and I don't. And the disparities just keep keep coming keep getting worse and I've seen a, a lot of my friends who have forms of mental illness are just over they're just behind they're just so depressed they can't do anything and and they're, and they're not getting the right services. And right? they're not getting the right services. And it's just, it's like a catch-22. You can only be very, very rich. You can't. You can't. And, quote-unquote, normal. Forget about having a disability. So, I want to ask you a couple, uh, we're going to do maybe two more questions and then I'm 
gonna let you all continue on with your day. Thank you so much for being a part of this interview. But we talked about Access Living as a place um, where you can come for advocacy. Um, there's community here, there's different services. So I'd like to hear from you all, and even you, Tom. What's your favorite, what's your favorite part of Access Living? Well, I would say uh, working with the healthcare team, I've uh, been a part of that team for a very long time. I actually, uh, I did DI. Deinstitutionalization. Yeah, deinstitutionalization work for a time uh, back in the day when uh, Access Living was doing it. And I'm very, I'm a big part of the task force. I'm one, one of the co-chairs with Susan, with Independent Voices. So I would say um, the healthcare team. I um, I appreciate the fact that when I'm struggling and have a question, there are many, many people who work here, and there are many, many issues that come up for us. But I appreciate the one-on-one conversations when you when you can when you can come up to someone and say, "This is what's happening to me. What do I do? Can you help me to get on that door?" in my home where my condo doesn't want me to do that. That's part of the legal team. But it's it's that one hour and and I've also been I've also been part of the disability community for for over for the whole forty years that access living has been in existence. So, I mean, they haven't been in 40 years, but, but the, I'm having a bad day. This is what's happening. Can you please help? And, and the fact that it's, that it's not, there's not usually a form I sign these are people who I respect, and I, if I didn't respect them, I wouldn't ask for their opinion. And it's just really important. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for me, I think the thing that um, I like about Access Living is that people with disabilities have a low profile. They're, like I said, they're poor, but. Access Living, by organizing people, creates a, a situation where people uh, with disabilities have a voice and where people with disabilities can be their own voice. There's a, 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 a slogan out there that the disability community uses quite a bit, nothing about us without us. And um, we, by having Access Living, there's ways that we've been able to take consumers to uh, Springfield to talk to legislators. We know that in politics, money talks, and the only way to counter money is through people power, and Access Living's been able to accomplish that to a certain degree. Um, we haven't won all the battles we're in down in Springfield, unfortunately, but we have blocked some things that are really bad that would hurt our community even worse than what it, we've seen so far. Um, we also, you know, I, one of the things I like is the healthcare team does um, at least four town halls a year, and we uh, bring people with certain expertise to the town halls. 
but also a lot of times we just have panels of people with disabilities to talk about their own experiences. And it's all about educating the community to be um, better educated, better advocates, um, more engaged in, in all the issues that uh, affect people with disabilities. But you know, with the healthcare team, particularly around access to healthcare, around quality to healthcare, around um, disability and cultural competence around healthcare issues. Okay, two more questions and then we're done. I saw on the website, you guys have a lot of events going on here, like arts and culture. Is that open to the public or what? what how did that come about? With yeah, um, a few years ago we got a small grant from uh, the State Arts Council. Uh, okay. And um, on a fairly regular basis we do disability culture here. Um, it could be Battle of the Bands, it could be poetry, it could be deaf theater, um, it could be a, a wheelchair dance or integrated dance. Um, there's quite a variety of things that um, we've, we've had here. So we have a space on the fourth floor where actually where we do our town halls too, which will accommodate oh, well, over 100 people, maybe up to 130. And it is open to the public because disability culture is, you know, should be for everybody, not just the disabled. That's awesome. I want to know what encourages you, even despite all of the challenges that you're facing, what encourages you to just keep moving forward? Because every day is a new day. So there's new opportunities for good, good and bad. Mm -hmm. But I think it's fine to make a difference mm -hmm. in whatever you're doing. Tell me something good that's happened to you already today. Well, we made, I made it um, the bus waited for us. So the bus waited for me. It was a good driver. And um, and it's not so cold today. Definitely no a plus. snow. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely a plus. No snow. All right, for you, Mike. My uh, PA came in a little late, so I was, and I had a ride coming in less than an hour, so I was a little concerned about. Okay, am I gonna make it? before my pace rat leaves because we have a very small window when we're using pace. They only give you sometimes two to five minutes and then they pull off and leave. But uh, we made it. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Um, and for you, Tom, um, so in comparison to other cities, do you think that Chicago in any way is, is a leader in terms of progress that's been made to accommodate the needs of um, consumers? Or it's Yeah, that, that's a very hard question to answer. I think um, Chicago is advantaged in a few ways. We have a disability studies program at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Um, we have, well... I'll give Access Living a few kudos. I think we're one of the more uh, advanced centers for independent living in the country and um, um, aggressive in, in our uh, advocacy for disability rights. Uh, we have more culture around disability than a lot of other cities. Uh, Susan's part of a, a writing program at Victory Gardens, which is open to anyone but focuses on uh, people with disabilities uh, uh, working on their writing and, and playwriting skills. Um, they also have, you know, we talked about culture here. They also do disability or crip culture events um, at, at Victory Garden. And there are other uh, venues where there's a certain amount of uh, uh, disability participation. Um, whether it's more advanced than other cities, that you know, I think we have maybe a little higher profile, but all cities could use, um, what would I say, strengthening of the disability community. Too many people still leave, lead really isolated lives. Um, the, the, the idea of uh, disabled and proud 
is still, I would say, very remote for a lot of people with disabilities uh, because of, you know, what they face day to day. And so, you know, those kind of things, Chicago, Chicago might be leading the way, but we all have a long way to go. Um, just to get back to the question about what makes my day, I think it's working with such great people. That's, that's, that's a big plus. Um, you know, I've been here for a long time, but it's partly because of the people I get to work with. Amazing. And we like to end our podcast with this one final question. If anybody wants to tell me what their favorite book is, or what's a great book you've read recently? The Room. The Room? Mm-hmm. By, who was that by? Um, I, I can't. They made a movie out of it. Oh, okay. I forget her name, but they made a movie out of it. Yes. And, um, it's just a very good book about resilience. Awesome. Okay. Let's go check that out. The Room. All right. Um, I don't know. I'll go with an oldie, The Hobbit, just for a total escape. Okay. Awesome. (laughs) For you, Mike? Um, Actually, uh, Susan gave me this novel. It was written by uh, Stephen King, and the name escapes me right now, but... So, scary? Yeah. Okay. I like scary... uh, novels. Okay. Great. Well, thank you all so much for your time. I do want to say on behalf of our podcast, thanks again to Tom, Mike, and Susan for giving us such a warm welcome. What did you think about the part when they mentioned nothing without us about us? I think it was really powerful in a sense. Um, Because I think that sometimes when you see a person with disabilities, you kind of assume what they want or assume what they need um, instead of really understanding that they do have a voice. And I think that it's very important. And that's what we're trying to bring out on the podcast. Love that motto. That's awesome. So we hope you guys enjoyed our episode. And as always, remember, be kind, be different and be great. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and authors and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities. National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, Northwestern Medicine, the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Skinny Trees is proudly produced and edited in the lab of Dr. Melissa Simon at Northwestern University. Melissa Simon is a member of the United States Preventive Service. Services Task Force. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views and policies of the USPSTF. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. This podcast claims no copyright to said content.